This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, how we thank you for your word that you have preserved and made available to us in our own language. We pray now as we think about the things that you have recorded for us this evening, that you would speak to us, that we would hear the faithful voice of our shepherd, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. A little while ago, I was in a conversation about watershed books. These are books that change something in you so that you're not the same person after reading them. It could be a concept the author explains, the way they bring something into focus, or even just being caught up in the story. There are books that turn us into different people. And it's not just books. There are experiences that change us, moments that divide our time into before and after. Graduations do that. You go from being a student to an alumnus. The same thing happens with weddings and moves and having kids. It was a weird moment for me when I turned in my New Jersey driver's license and got one from Pennsylvania. I'm not still sure how I feel about it. These shifts don't just stay contained into neat little areas of our lives. Being a dad affects the movies I enjoy, the way we spend our time, even how we vacation. Life's not the same. Just like it wasn't the same after getting married, and it wasn't the same after coming to Christ. And that is what we see here in this passage from 2 Corinthians. Being in Jesus is the most important of these watershed moments. It changes our affections. It changes how others see us, and it changes our motivations. Now, In the first part of this letter, Paul focuses on his conflict with the Corinthians. And in this section, he's giving a defense of his ministry to them as an apostle. Paul knew that he didn't live up to the Corinthians' expectations. They wanted strength, but he was weak. They wanted power, wealth, and influence. He showed them humility and sacrifice. Being an apostle was not the way of glory. It's the way of the cross. It's not just true for apostles. Being in Jesus changes us. It makes us part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We suddenly become litmus strips, revealing the hearts of the people around us, and it changes our motivations. We're not driven by the same things anymore. And this watershed change is what I want to think about with you this evening. In Jesus, you are on the other side of a change that cannot be undone. You're different. And for some of you, that's just started. For others, it's been going on for years. But we all need to remember that we are not who we were. It's easy to have our hearts shaped by the context we live in. That's not really you. You belong to Jesus. Now, verses 12 and 13 of our passage give us Paul's recent travel activities. Sometime after writing 1 Corinthians, Paul visited the church again, and then he wrote them a painful letter. He sent the letter with Titus and agreed to meet him at Troas to see how it was received. 
Now, Corinth was located on the narrow strip of land that connects Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, near the bottom of the Aegean Sea. And Troas was located across the Aegean on the northwest coast of Turkey. It was supposed to be a two-for-one trip for the apostle. Troas gave him a, a convenient place to meet up with Titus, hear how things were going in Corinth, and it gave him an opportunity to continue his work of evangelism and church planting. That's what he talks about in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now, I skipped over a few words there, but I want you to see first that Troas presented a very real opportunity for Paul. It was strategically located on the coast, making it a good home base for a mission. And it was a common embarking point for people who were traveling all over Asia Minor to Europe. Now, Troas matches Paul's strategy of targeting cities where uh, they could serve as a hub for exporting the gospel to a whole region. That makes a lot of sense for Paul. And verse 12 makes it sound like it was starting to work. God blessed his efforts. A church was starting to come together. And by the time you get to Acts 20, there's a community of Christians worshiping there. All good. And so we come back to the words that we skipped over in verse 12 when we look at verse 13. Paul goes to Troas to preach the gospel, but he couldn't stay. Even though a door was opened for him in the Lord, his spirit was not at rest. Now, this work was, was Paul's whole reason for being. I mean, this is who he was. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the church planter. He's a guy that you could send into a city, and then 18 months later, there's a functional church. You would think he could just throw himself into doing what he loved so much. It's not what happened. Even though there was an open door, people are coming to faith, a church is being established out of nothing, the gospel is being preached, Paul's spirit was not at rest because he didn't find his brother Titus there. And he couldn't continue doing that good work that he was doing in Troas because he was concerned about the Corinthians. He couldn't be at peace doing the kinds of things that he knew God wanted him to do until he knew how that difficult, intransigent, stubborn, foolish, unruly church, how they were doing. So he made the hard decision to leave. He packed up his bags. He got on his ship from Macedonia. In the ancient world, there were only certain times of the year that you could sail. It was too dangerous to try when the weather wasn't right. One of Paul's shipwrecks is caused when a captain starts a journey too late in the year. And evidently, he and Titus had a backup plan, a meeting in Macedonia. So when Titus doesn't show up on time to Troas, Paul leaves the new work to try to get some news. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least not from a purely practical point of view. And Paul was an evangelist. He was an apostle. He was a church planner. What do church planters do? They plant churches. They tell people about Jesus. And it's what he was doing there in Troas. When it's going well, it's a wonderful work. It is great to see people coming to the Lord. It is wonderful to see God use you, to have people go from death to life. That's what we're hoping for in our church plant in King of Prussia. Good news. It's what we're all praying for with Downingtown and Doylestown. And Paul could see that. Once there was not a church, and now there was one coming together. It makes you think, maybe people told him he was making a mistake. What are you doing? Why leave now? Why leave when things are going so well? But his spirit wasn't at rest. The Holy Spirit did not let him stay in that fulfilling work. He needed to find out about that troublesome, annoying, frustrating church in Corinth. Why? 
Why would he do that? Well, it's because he loved them. He loved them because Jesus loved them. And this is what being in Jesus does to us. It makes you part of something. It changes your heart so that you care deeply about your brothers and sisters in Christ, even the annoying ones. It makes you feel their pain, bear their burdens, carry their hurts. You are not by yourselves anymore. You are part of something else, the body of Christ. <clears throat> the great upside of that is that you're part of a body. In Jesus, you have brothers and sisters who care about you. No Christian should ever have to face any burden alone. You have people to pray for you. We just did it a few moments ago this evening. You have people to care for you, to come alongside you when you need help. But you know, that relationship goes both ways. Just as you are cared for, you need to care for the body. You can't just write people off who are hurting or struggling or even really annoying as much as you might want to. In Jesus, we are part of them and they are part of us. We used to be independent. Now we are part of a larger whole. Now this love for other Christians is what led Paul to leave his good work in Troas. He had to know how that hurting church in Corinth was doing. And we need to do that same work of embracing the people that God has brought to us. All of them, even the troublemakers, even the bothersome ones. Because we're not the same anymore. We're in this together now. We get another watershed moment, beginning in verse 14. Now 12 to 13 show how being in Jesus changes our relationship with each other. Starting in verse 14, Paul shows how being in Jesus changes our relationship to outsiders. And he starts with a picture of a Roman triumph. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, a triumph was a parade honoring a Roman general who'd achieved a great victory. They would dress him in royal robes and crown him with a laurel. He rode in a chariot from the outskirts of the city all the way to the temple of Jupiter. Some accounts talk about him even having his face painted red to honor Jupiter. He was basically king for the day, almost like a god for the day. And there were two groups of people who went along with the parade. Behind the general were his victorious soldiers, the legions who fought with him. In front of the conquering army were their defeated foes. The Romans made their prisoners march in front of them, and then some of them were executed for their role in the war. Now, some elements of this triumph have lasted until modern times. You can think about the parades through Paris at the beginning and at the end of World War II. Uh, last year, I read an account of the Grand Review. That was a two-day parade through Washington, D.C., at the end of the Civil War. And the triumph that Paul has in mind is Jesus' victory at the cross. He talks about it in Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The author of the book of Hebrews continues the same thought in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' death destroyed any claim 
that Satan had on us. We died with Christ. Our sins and our failures were put to death with Him on the cross. And His resurrection broke the power of the grave over us. We are no longer subject to Adam's curse. We are not under the penalty of death. Jesus rose from the dead, and we will follow Him from the grave to new life. That is the victory that our Lord won for us. He conquered our sin and death. He triumphed over all of his and our enemies. He utterly disarmed the accuser and any who could speak against us. There is no one left to condemn us. They are all silenced by his death and resurrection. Jesus is the triumphant general who marches through the city. That part of the picture is clear. What's less clear is if Paul sees himself in front of Jesus or behind him. Is he part of the triumph? Is he one of the loyal soldiers following his Lord? Or is he one of the captives? A defeated enemy who was conquered and being led to his death. The commentators are split, and there are good arguments on both sides. On, on the one hand, Paul was a defeated foe. He was conquered. Think about what happened on the road to Damascus. Luke says in Acts that Paul was breathing out threats to the church. When Jesus appeared uh, to Paul, he asked him, why are you persecuting me? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. He was an enemy, and Jesus conquered him. The risen Lord appeared, knocked Paul to the ground, and in a moment changed his life forever. Paul went from persecutor to prophet, from an enemy to a servant. So the way our shorter catechism talks about what Jesus did for us. 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Well, one of the enemies that Jesus conquered was us. He subdued us to himself. We are the former traitors and rebels against the king of the universe. We were Jesus' enemies, but he conquered us and killed our old selves, gave us new hearts so that we could love him. So you could think of Paul, and you could think of us, as one of those who goes before, one of the conquered enemies. It matches well with what he says in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. But you know, it also works the other way. We are... Christ's workmanship, created in him to do good works, Ephesians 2. Jesus gifts us and equips us to serve him and to build up his church, Ephesians 4. In conquering us, he has made us part of his glorious army. Ephesians 6, Paul describes the, the battle kit that Jesus equips us with. We're given a helmet and a breastplate, a shield and a sword. We are the Lord's army following our king into battle against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces in the, of evil in the heavenly places. We're engaged in warfare, not against flesh and blood, but the weapons Jesus gave us have divine power to demolish strongholds, destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. That's later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Both pictures fit. We are the conquered foe, and we are the conquering army. And this ambiguity might be part of Paul's point. 
Look at the end of verse 14 through 16 where he changes pictures. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. We are the aroma of Christ, his fragrance, like a perfume or a cologne that indicates someone is coming. Think about, think about walking into your house at the end of the day and smelling fresh baked bread or, or getting a whiff of brownies or chocolate chip cookies or the way you can smell really good barbecue even before you can see the smoker. You know what those smells mean. They mean you're going to be happy. And that's what the church is like. We are the aroma of Christ. We announce his presence, his imminent arrival before he gets here. But it doesn't smell the same way to everybody. To us, it's a fragrance of life to life. When you're with the church, you sense Jesus' presence. You know that the Lord you love is near. His, uh, he is life and hope and blessing. But outside of Jesus, if you're among those perishing, that same aroma of Christ smells like death. It's a reminder that God is holy and cannot allow sin into his presence, will not allow sin into his presence, and that you are not holy. You're a creature in rebellion against its creator. You're a traitor who refuses to acknowledge the true king of kings. Ultimately, the aroma of Christ smells like the death of final judgment or you'll be cast outside forever. Being around Jesus and around his people shows who you really are, not who you pretend to be. And the mixed pictures show the change that we've been talking about. When I look at the church, I see, when I look at you, I see the bride. I see the victorious army following our commander, the, the ranks of the redeemed, clothed in the white of Christ's righteousness, armed with the helmet of salvation, bearing the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. I sense the coming of our Lord, the one we have waited for, his fragrance of life. Those outside only smell death. They see us as slaves being driven to our doom. And that's what Jesus does to us. There's the change. It makes us seem like life to some and death to others. It turns us into a litmus test of their hearts. They belong to Jesus, then we bring the aroma of life. We are more than conquerors. If they don't, then all they smell on us is death. The impending judgment and doom brought by the great judge of all. We, we don't get to be neutral anymore. We don't get to have no opinion. Being in Jesus makes you smell like life or like death. But if that's what you're sensing, even right now, you know that you are perishing, but you want to live. If you want to be forgiven and know Jesus as life, then you, you can. Confess to him who you are and what you have done. Put your faith in what he did for you on the cross, and he will forgive you. He will make you one of his own, and he will transfer you from death to life. And so far, we've, we've seen that being in Jesus makes us part of the church. We're not by ourselves anymore. And it changes the way that outsiders look on us. We're either death or life to them. It also changes our hearts. It changes our motivation. So Paul introduces this with a question. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, who could possibly be sufficient to represent Jesus? To be his fragrance to the world, announcing his arrival? Bearing the aroma of life so that those who are perishing can find the rescuer? I don't feel up to that task. 
Paul's on the same page. Later on in chapter 3, he'll say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us. It's not about taking credit here. We're not saying, oh yeah, there's something super special about us, something that you know, made us special people so others can smell Jesus on us. No, no, Paul is aware of our own deep weaknesses. He also knows that Jesus is at work in us. He is changing our hearts to make us want to represent our Lord. And he, changed, he illustrates that contrast with the, or he illustrates that change with another contrast. On the one side, he talks about those uh, so many peddlers of God's word. Now, these were the people that were giving Paul so many troubles in Corinth. And they were the ones who were really impressive to the Corinthians. They had all of the outward appearances that the Corinthians valued. They were polished. They were well-spoken. They were well-dressed and, and beautiful and, and cultured. They made the Apostle Paul look bad because he didn't have the right clothes and he didn't have the right style. It wasn't about that life. He looked more like the prisoner condemned to die than the conquering soldier. But these peddlers were impressive because they used God's word for their own ends. To them, Jesus is just a business opportunity. He was a shtick to be exploited. Their motivations were themselves, their, their own appearance, their own influence, their own wealth. And those who had the skill, who were persuasive, they had, they had rewards. They were out for themselves. And they used the word of God as a convenient way of advancing their own self-interest. Not too hard to find people like that around us today. Or it's not about Jesus, it's about them. Temptation surely hasn't gone away. It's not what the apostle was like. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And Paul's motivations were, were changed by Jesus. They weren't about him anymore. He, they were about his Lord. He and the other apostles were, were men of sincerity. They were who they said they were. There was no hiding. There was no ulterior motives. There were no secret agendas. They belonged to Jesus. They wanted other people to belong to him too. It's the exact opposite of what the Corinthians accused him of. They, they accused him of changing plans and manipulating them or of somehow robbing them by not taking their money. I'm trying to figure that one out. Paul says, no, we are men of sincerity. We are men of integrity. We mean what we say. This has got to be us. Our words and our actions have to reflect who Jesus has made us to be. We're his. We've been redeemed by him. We belong to him. We are the conquered slaves in the conquering army. We are the aroma of life to life. Our purpose is to serve him in the places where he has called us, not to serve ourselves. Paul says they were commissioned by God. And he meant that literally. He was sent by the resurrected Jesus to be the apostle to the nations. Paul's work in Corinth originated from Jesus' direct command to him. Now, our commissions aren't quite as obvious, but they're just as true. You, all of you, are servants of the living God. And he has put you just where he wants you. He ordained your talents, your abilities, your weaknesses, and your circumstances. You are who you are and where you are on purpose, not on accident. The Lord put you there to serve him. Now for Paul, that meant preaching and teaching and planting churches. Your calls are different. 
Some of you are called to be students, some teachers. Some of you are called to be homemakers, some providers. Some of you have been given lots of time to spend in prayer and encouragement. All of us have been commissioned for his service. And the service is done in the sight of God as we speak in Christ. Final layer there of our motivation. Our Father in heaven sees us. He sees our labors for him. He sees our struggles for him. And he's given us this heart that wants to please him and bring him glory. He even equips us to speak in Christ. And that's how we become the aroma of life and death. Not from ourselves, not to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit gives us what we need so we can serve our Lord. He's the one who makes us the aroma of Jesus and who changes us so that other people sense Jesus on us. It's not about us. It's about him. For me, one of the watershed books that I mentioned earlier is The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. It's about a controversy in the Scottish church way back in the 1700s over another book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. And in it, Ferguson picks up the idea of the tincture of Christ. Now, a tincture is a quality, usually a color, that diffuses through something. Think of a, a drop of blue dye changing the color of a glass of water. This is what Jesus does to us. He changes us, not, not just part of us, the whole thing, so that everything about us is colored by him. And those are the kind of changes that Paul talks about here. He couldn't just abandon the Corinthians. They'd become too dear to him in Christ. Jesus made him love them. And the church was changed so that they became the aroma of Christ. They brought the fragrance of life to some, and at the same time, the aroma of death to others. Some see us as slaves marching pitifully to our doom. We know that we are part of Jesus' glorious army. And the change works all the way down into our hearts, making them about him, or making our lives about him and not about us. It's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't leave us alone. He makes us more and more like him, colored by his love, giving off the fragrance of his presence. But what we can't do is go back. We can't undye a, a cup of water. We can't pretend everything is the same. In Jesus, you're part of a new family. And the rest of the world will sense him in you and through you. He's even given you a new heart. It's what he gave you when he conquered you and made you his. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that you have done this, that you have not left us as traitors and rebels and outsiders, but you've made us your very own. You've taken us from death to life. And we're thankful for your church, for the church that is gathered here, for Trinity Church. We, we pray that you would bless her. Thank you for assembling your, your body of believers here. And you've made us something, a part of something bigger than ourselves, where we are bound together in the bonds of love and peace in Christ. Our Lord, you are changing us so that those around us I can sense your presence in us. To some, we are the aroma of death. To others, the aroma of life. And we pray that they would sense Jesus and want to know more about him. And we pray you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would make them more and more like our Savior so that we would think and act and feel and choose just as he would. We long for our motivations to be pure, to be men and women of sincerity, who are what we say we are and act as our Savior would have us act serve him the places you've called us. Lord, continue, we pray, that good work which you have begun in us. 
For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.